bostonfreeradio.com. Hello again, my name is Guillermo Hamlin. I am the host of the Guaucast. It is the top of the hour. Today we are going to be speaking with Sam Tracy, cannabis consultant, political chair of the Portland Democrats, and also a good friend of mine. We're going to be discussing a whole range of issues, such as civil liberties, uh, cannabis use in the state of Massachusetts and New England at large, and ultimately, politics. Lots of politics. Stay tuned. If you're a big fan of our podcast, if you're a big fan of our radio program, all the weird, twisting, moving parts of this experiment that we're doing, by all means, please leave us a good review wherever you get your podcast to listen to the Guaucast on Boston Free Radio. Absolutely. Uh, my name is Sam Tracy, and I wear a few different hats, but work in uh, politics and, uh, and marijuana. Uh, let's start with politics. Uh, what got you started into politics? Well, huh, big question. I guess going all the way back, um, I was definitely, I've been a politics nerd since high school. Um, I was involved in Model UN and student government and that sort of thing. So I've always had some of an interest in it. Um, but I think it does kind of stem back to a U.S. government class in high school where I basically, you know, was trying to figure out what kind of career I wanted to go into. I didn't know if it would be you know, science or, or technology or something like that. I was into engineering for a while. Um, but basically, I ended up settling on politics because I realized it has such a huge, inescapable influence on pretty much every aspect of people's lives. And so if you want to you know, make a big impact on the world to make the world a better place, politics is one really great way to do it. Um, and so my interest you know, was focused on civil liberties at the time. I was always a big fan of the ACLU, still am, um, and kind of that larger umbrella of, of various issues. So whether it's criminal justice reform, marijuana and other drug policy, uh, things like immigration, uh, police accountability, uh, civil liberties has really been the big focus just because I feel like that's where the, the area where government can be the, the most heavy handed. What is the state of civil liberties in the era of Trump? When I was in college, they were burning their hair over civil liberties under President Obama. But where do we see the transition from President Obama's civil liberties platform and record to that of uh, current President Trump? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a really freaky thing. And before I dive into how bad President Trump is, I, I do want to uh, talk a little bit about President Obama, because in so many ways, you know, I, we all kind of wistfully wish that he was still around um, and is so much better than President Trump in so many ways. But when it comes to civil liberties, he actually wasn't that great. He wasn't really all that progressive. I mean, the first talk, thinking about drone killings of one time with an American citizen, uh, albeit overseas, but um, that really went unchecked. Um, the whole NSA surveillance state kind of came unmasked during the Obama presidency with Edward Snowden. And at the time I was working in DC tech 
policy uh, with a group called Tech Freedom. And so we were really focused on the NSA surveillance state and everything. Um, and so Obama was, you know, not at all perfect in that respect. But that being said, um, it is a pretty scary thought to think that the, the huge national security apparatus, including the surveillance state and all of the various NSA programs that were put in place during the Obama administration and before him as well, he did inherit some of it. But now President Trump has inherited all of that. And I think it's very clear that he's much less constrained by norms, by uh, any kind of uh, politeness or really caring too much about what the other half of the country that didn't vote for him thinks. And so I think that sort of weapon essentially is a lot more dangerous in the hands of someone like President Trump than someone like President Obama, who was a lot more traditional in the sense that, you know, he wasn't trying to alienate people. He was trying to unite the country um, and didn't want to do anything too extreme uh, because of that. In part, do you think he's refined it? by trying to be mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, because, you know, you can't have first black president really, like, drop the ball on national security. So I kind of mm-hmm. understand his position, and I understand the predicament. However, the erosions of privacy is something that's so crucial, and it, I feel like it goes hand-to-hand with what led to ultimately another stand on President Obama's uh, presidential record is that of his immigration policy. The immigration policy, which, mm-hmm. use, which which relies on these erosion of privacy standards in order to really go about detaining and eventually deporting undocumented immigrants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and I do recognize some of the constraints on Obama. Like you said, being the first black president, he did have a lot more attention on him in certain ways. And I mean, same thing with marijuana legalization. There's a lot of people who said, you know, President Obama wanted to do it, but, you know, he didn't want everyone to think that the first black president then comes in, legalizes marijuana and, you know, conservatives light their heads on fire. And, uh, but they kind of did that anyway. (laughs) And so there, in the end, I, I wish that Obama had been more extreme because the, the GOP response to him was so extreme, even though he was so constrained. And I do think that race is probably a majority of that, even though there are a lot of other factors at play too. Wanted, so I want to delve a little bit into pot. Usually, uh, you know, a bunch of us like to be really like uh, genteel, discreet about the subject, but we don't get to do that here in the Guaucast because in the Guaucast we get to be open and flagrant about how we talk about things. So, tell me more about what goes into the business of cannabis. Uh, you live in Portland, Maine, uh, which is becoming to be a huge state when it, you know, since they've legalized it, and I think there is a future for the cannabis industry there. But I live in Massachusetts. We rolled out the implementation differently. How would you compare these two uh, in terms of their regulatory rollout implementation? And what do you think the future will be like for uh, cannabis users in the marketplace? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is really fascinating to see how things are playing out in all the different states. Because um, as you mentioned, I live in in Maine now in Portland, um, but I was in uh, the greater Boston area just uh, earlier this year the past few years before that. Uh, And so I have a lot of experience in kind of a bunch of different states in New England and how they're approaching this. I'm from Connecticut originally. Um, And every single one is so different. I mean, Maine, we have this uh, kind of strange, we like to call it the gray market because 
you know, it's not quite the black market, but it's not exactly, you know, legal and regulated. Um, but back when Maine uh, first passed medical marijuana, which was actually like 20 years ago almost, um, it's been around for a long time here. Uh, they set it up, it was in the early days, similar to early California or Michigan, where no one thought that it would be allowed to have these regulated storefronts. Um, so the way that they got around all of that was by allowing people to have caregivers who could you know, grow a certain number of plants in order to help out a patient who maybe couldn't grow their own. Um, and so that was the model that uh, was created. And so home growing is huge here. And they found, some would say loopholes, some would say that this is just how they read their regulations, um, but basically allowing people to set up these storefronts where you're only allowed to have five patients as a caregiver, but they just basically claim that the five people in the store at that time are their patients. So it was kind of a way around that whole ban. Um, while in Massachusetts, it's you know a lot more kind of Puritan, um, highly regulated. Massachusetts loves its regulations, both the politicians and the voters. Um, and so it's all very much, only, there's no home growing allowed except in very specific circumstances that's hard to qualify for. So effectively none, at least on the medical side, obviously now everyone can grow it uh, because of adult use legalization. But it, the, the storefronts there, it was incredibly expensive to uh, get started. Uh, you needed to grow all of your own in a giant warehouse in order to supply your own store. This is all for the medical program. And so it all uh, started off, it was basically a whole lot more corporate, for lack of a better word, in Massachusetts, uh, while in Maine, it was quite literally homegrown. Uh, and so it did create a very different sort of dynamic. And now with both states moving towards adult use legalization, um, sales will hopefully be starting in Massachusetts uh, within the next few weeks. Um, Maine, it's going to take a little while longer and because of our terrible governor, and maybe we could talk about that after a bit. It's stalled out, but it will be up and running next year. But since we started from such a more loosely regulated place than Massachusetts, there are already a ton of people home growing in Maine openly uh, before we even had adult use legalization because there is such a broad uh, medical law here. And what goes into growing in Massachusetts as opposed to Maine? And you delved a little bit into that. I imagine that Maine, just because of you know the the property laws there, just the way that they regulated it, just allowed for just homegrown in its most plain uh, in its plain uh, reading. But when it comes to Massachusetts, how would one grow in their apartment, in their home? How would one go about just growing their own in, in the state of Massachusetts if they wanted to, say, give it to friends, if they wanted to experiment on their own strain? Or let's say perhaps they just want to just grow their own just to keep to themselves and just be a very quiet, hardworking Massachusetts resident. And they want to just mm -hmm. stay out of and they just want to stay out of the uh increase of the commercialized dispensaries instead would just like to focus on their own uh, growth. Yeah. I mean, in Massachusetts, it's somewhat easy. Um, the, the limits are actually better than in Maine now. Um, you're allowed to grow up to six plants uh, per person. Um, and so if you, and I think it's capped at 12 per household. So if, say you have a group house with four people, you can still only do 12. Uh, but if you have two people, you can do 12 as well. Um, and there are certain restrictions on it, like your landlord is legally able to put something in your, in your lease saying that you can't uh, grow at home. 
um, there are certain restrictions, but let's say theoretically you either own your own home or your landlord is fine with it or it's not prohibited in your lease, you're allowed to legally grow up to six plants per resident. Um, getting or getting started, I guess, is the somewhat tougher part because since stores aren't open right now, um, you know, if you go out to Oregon, you can walk into a dispensary, you could either buy some joints, you could buy some edibles, or you could buy some plants. They actually sell clones there. So you could buy, you know, a very small marijuana plant, bring it home with you and nurture it yourself and grow it into a big plant that you could harvest from. In Massachusetts, since stores aren't open yet, really the only, you know, legal way to get started is by uh, gifting, essentially. So you could get some seeds or some clones from somebody um, as a gift without any uh, financial remuneration, um, and, and then you can get started that way. I do love um, how certain activists in other jurisdictions have worked with this, because um, DC, Washington DC has a very similar law. Um, they don't allow any storefronts and that's pretty much indefinite. But when home growing became legalized there, activists had what they called their big seed share. And they brought literally like thousands, probably tens of thousands of seeds from growers all over the place, brought it all together. Police were at the event. They were, you know, there to make sure nothing got out of hand, but watching it all go down because it was totally legal and people could go and get a bunch of seeds in order to start their own home grow. Um, I haven't seen anything like that in Massachusetts in terms of big public events, but I hope that, you know, enthusiasts are doing this in a smaller scale themselves and helping out friends um, to be able to, to get things going. And there are a, a whole lot of fantastic uh, guides out there uh, that you can find in order to uh, have different uh, guides to home growing or, or just about the plants in general. Um, and, and there's obviously a whole lot of great websites out there, too, that'll, that'll help you out. Awesome. So... You want to touch a little bit on Governor LePage. Why is Governor LePage such a pain in this side of New England? Yeah, I mean, so Governor uh, Paul LePage, who's the current governor of Maine, he's going to be out in just a few months. I'm really excited about that. Uh, we have term limits in Maine, so you can only have two terms. Um, so we will finally be rid of them no matter who wins. Uh, so that's good news. And for people who haven't heard of Governor LePage before, uh, just a quick illustration of who he is. Um, he calls himself Trump 1.0 um, in, a, in a good way. He said things like, I was Trump before Trump was Trump, basically saying he was this outside uh, wealthy businessman who came into office and is basically burning everything down. Um, he's blocking uh, so many different ballot initiatives passed by voters, uh, things like Medicaid expansion, uh, he's throwing up roadblocks to things that used to be routine um, and, and done a whole lot of terrible, uh, bas not basically, explicitly racist stuff before in terms of racist uh, policing, uh, saying that black people were responsible for the opioid epidemic in Maine, which is one of the whitest states in the country. Um, so he That's... said some really horrible, horrible stuff like that. Um, but when it comes to marijuana specifically, um, Maine, we've, in 2016, at the same time as Massachusetts, passed a ballot initiative to legalize marijuana for adults, uh, but the legislature had to pass a bill basically implementing it, um, establishing regulations, everything like that, and LePage vetoed that bill. 
Um, so he was able to block it for a long time. Um, and it wasn't until uh, this year, uh, in the middle of this year, where he, the legislature was finally able to basically strike a bargain um, where they watered down some of the provisions. We used to have six plants, for example, per person, um, and it then got bargained down to only three plants per person. So you can have twice as many plants in Massachusetts now. And then there were some other kind of technical things that got changed. Um, but the legislature overrode that veto. So now we're finally starting off that process, but they still have to write the regulations. They still have to give out the licenses and it's gonna be a while until stores open. I'd probably say late 2019 at the earliest, but maybe early 2020. Have you ever, no uh, do you notice a difference between say parts of rural Maine and the more urban districts in Maine in regards to how they regulate or govern themselves in terms of use? I mean, I know, I mean, I can't necessarily, I mean, I don't tell me if this is too much of a long-winded question, but you know mm -hmm. how's it, how is it like to how is it like for the cannabis user in Farmington, Maine, as opposed to the one down maybe in Wells, Maine? You know, really mm -hmm. high up north and really closer to New Hampshire and Boston. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a really interesting dynamic too, because I mean, it does fit within kind of the traditional mold in a certain in certain ways. Um, you know, generally rural areas are more conservative and cities are more liberal. Um, and that does play out in Maine. It's, the rural areas are definitely more Republican, but it's kind of more of more of a libertarian type of Republican, to be honest, than a conservative one. It's people who, um, you know, want to protect their marijuana plants with guns. Um, and Maine has a big gun culture, and that's actually something interesting um, that's been playing out a lot is uh, because of federal law. Obviously, marijuana is illegal under federal law. Guns are legal, um, but if you're legally, as far as the state's concerned, growing marijuana plants um, and you have a gun, um, then you have enhanced penalties uh, at the federal level. Um, and so there's cases, there's, you know, subreddits and things like that where main uh, growers um, are talking about their plants and some people, for example, getting them stolen and some people saying, hey, you know, just put up signs about um, these plants are protected by the Second Amendment and that sort of thing. And then a bunch of other people coming in saying, no, don't do that. The one thing you do not want to do is to protect your marijuana plants with guns, at least under the current laws, because that's the thing that's going to get you. Even if you could, you know, um, shoot somebody who is burglarizing your house um, legally in Maine, uh, but you, you can't do that if they're stealing your marijuana, basically, even though that's legal to the state. So it creates this really strange dynamic of having a state that has both loose marijuana laws and loose gun laws in comparison to Massachusetts, where guns are so much not a part of the culture that that issue doesn't really come up as much. Um, and so that is something and we've actually seen. There was a there's a, uh, a court case right now. I don't have the name of it in front of me, but a few people are actually being tried for uh, lying on the form that you submit when you get a background check to purchase a gun, uh, they make you sign something saying that you're not a user of illegal drugs is the phrasing they use, including marijuana, they specify on there. And basically police are charging some people saying that they lied at the time that they were marijuana users when they purchased these guns. Um, and so Maine is kind of a good microcosm of how this is playing out. Um, although I'm sure the same sort of thing is happening in rural Washington or Oregon or California, because um, there is also a gun culture in those rural areas as well. 
But I also think it's fascinating because in the state of Massachusetts, you're not allowed to um, register to get an FID, I believe, a firearms identification, um, you know, firearms mm -hmm. identification, if you are also having a DPH card, the Department of Public Health card, which allows you to be a medical marijuana user uh, legally. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel as though like these laws, these competing laws are allowing for these gray areas where some people may want to protect themselves uh, utilizing the Second Amendment, but they are unable to do so due to a, you know, um, some sort of medical uh, accommodation. And I feel like mm -hmm. that's a predicament. And I agree that, you know, in the state of Maine, you have these people who were just law-abiding citizens uh, are now um, taking advantage of uh, the permissibility of a new substance. And now all of a sudden, they're kind of painted to be this kind of like, you know, ATF villain. You know, when it comes to all sorts of uh, drugs and guns, it, it, it makes it sound like they're like criminals. But for the most part, they're just Mainers just doing their job and living their lives and wanting to do so quietly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it does get even more complicated in other ways, too. I mean, just elaborating more on the marijuana and gun stuff is that in Maine, um, as long as you're allowed to legally own a gun, you're automatically allowed to carry it with you. Uh, we have they call it constitutional carry. Um, so you don't need to get a special permit to be a concealed carry uh, uh, owner. Um, and so, so basically, if you can touch also, a gun, you can conceal it. Sorry? So, so more or less, if you can touch a gun, if you can reach out and grab a gun, you have the right to conceal it. Yeah, if you're allowed to, you know, if you own a gun, if you legally possess it, if you're allowed to legally possess it in your house in a safe, you're legally allowed to carry it with you um while you're going about your day um and so now you're also of course legally allowed to carry i think up to an ounce of cannabis um so but if you carry those two things at the same time um it then becomes illegal so it's this very strange sort of situation that um that we're running into here and of course it all does come back to the whole state versus federal government law thing um but yeah it is a very strange situation future of cannabis regulation. Uh, wh what has your uh, expertise and insight in doing governmental relations, um, being, you know, a very phenomenal spokesperson for the future of this industry, how do you see these industries, you know, growing? Uh, do you see them joining a chamber of commerce anytime soon? In terms of any sort of community benefits that they provide, do you see that as a thing of the past or that's probably like a necessary uh, entry by which to circumvent the previous barriers, or do you just see it maintaining its role, which is this sort of vice, this sort of um, market that needs to be regulated in a way due to how sensitive its history has been to this nation, you know, on all sides in terms of uh, the way that it's been characterized and, you know, when, it, when they've uh, made it like a very racial undertone during the drug war to that of just uh, being associated with a specific sort of criminal and uh, um, slacker culture. 
do you see these things changing or in part are we are is the past going to inform the future in this industry yeah i think things are changing and they're changing pretty fast albeit in a very piecemeal kind of way because um, right now i mean there are certain cannabis businesses um, in certain areas that you know are members of the chamber of commerce who are very involved in the community who sponsor um, you know, the very typical sort of charities and neighborhood associations and things like that um, in certain places, particularly on the West Coast, where it's a lot less kind of socially taboo um, to be involved in the industry. And it's been going for so much longer. Um, and I do think that time is really what it's all about. Um, I mean, if you look at Massachusetts, it's still so new. We only passed medical marijuana six years ago. Um, so it is very new, uh, at least legally speaking. Uh, and, and so it is a bit slower to adapt um, in order to get the same level of acceptance of being part of you know, the larger business community and things like that. But it is changing. I think that the longer you have a law in place, the more people get comfortable with it thinking, oh, it looks like, you know, the government isn't cracking down on people who get involved. And so more and more people get involved. And then you have this sort of critical mass where, hey, there's actually hundreds of thousands of people who are involved in this industry. It's pretty impossible to, to crack down on all of them. Um, and I think the big thing that's actually driving these changes, too, is that it, in the U.S. is actually outside the U.S., uh, in Canada. Um, they just legalized at the federal level this week, um, and they have, you know, these medical marijuana businesses that are traded on their major stock exchanges, um, the uh, CSE, Canadian Stock Exchange, uh, basically their NASDAQ, uh, where you can buy and trade marijuana companies. Um, and having that link to kind of the institutional business world has made it so accepted so fast. Um, and they're even getting involved with a bunch of American companies and American companies are trying to, you know, get listed on the Canadian stock exchanges. And there's all sorts of stuff going on here um, where there's kind of this movement towards Canada, uh, whether it's on paper or, you know, in the real world. Um, but a lot of the business is shifting over there just because there's no strange federal state conflict there. It's just legal. Um, and I think that if America doesn't catch up and fix our laws soon, it probably will end up with Canada being, I mean, you know, the global leader of cannabis, uh, just because they're going to get so big of a head start. That's crazy. I know that when uh, it came to Latin America, you know, since we're talking the Americas, mm -hmm. we have Canada, the United States, and then Central, then the rest of Latin America. I know that Uruguay had a very mm -hmm. interesting rollout because it was distributed by their government. And in order to really be permitted to do so, I think they had to register with like uh, the Department mm -hmm. of Public Health, which comes at the expense because I think something that we like to always gravitate back towards is privacy and civil liberties in the age of, you know, just of now, just in our day and age where we're very exhibitionistic on cyberspace via social media even the way that our, you know, public facing roles in any sort of digital application has risen. Do you think that the mm -hmm. Uruguayan residents were, that there were some Uruguayan residents that were a bit uh, trepidatious about, be, or, you know, a little bit cautious about allowing the federal government to have them in some registration at, you know, just for the promise of being able to access, you know, cannabis without any sort of real 
um, hassle. That being said, mm-hmm. many people argue that in Latin America, it's it's easily accessible. Just the regulatory frame has been shifted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting to see the different ways that different countries and different states are regulating this. As you said in Uruguay, that it's basically state run. So it's not a commercial system in the sense that there's private companies who are, you know, creating their own products and innovating and trying to chase what customers want. Um, Instead, it's kind of like a, you know, somewhat like a liquor store in New Hampshire, even though that's kind of different too, because it's still private um, producers, it's just a state retail. It's like socialized um, cannabis, right? Is that it's state all the way through. Yeah, it's like socialized um, cannabis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's you know total vertical integration, but by the government. Um, and so you're smoking, you know, government weed. Uh, from what little I've read, I've never been to Uruguay, um, but what I've read about it is basically they have you know maybe two or three strains there. Um, they're all very low THC, um, very low quality, um, and there isn't the same sort of incentives that you have in, you know, the free market where they actually want to produce something that's good so that people will buy it. There, they're the only game in town, and this is what you get with a monopoly, basically. And it's going to be low quality, and I'm sure many people are, as you said, getting it from other sources. This is, this is, even though the government's the only legal place to get it, obviously people are getting it elsewhere too, and it's probably a lot better. Um, and so I do think that having a regulated commercial system makes a lot more sense just because then people actually will make that switch over. Um, and if you're concerned about things like, uh, you know, testing and public safety regulations, uh, tax revenue, any, any of those concerns, you need to get people to switch over from the black market to the legal market. Um, and there, it seems to be kind of being a roadblock. Um, in a way, it seems like they're almost treating it like, uh, like Switzerland treats heroin, that they, they have basically prescription heroin, you know, needle exchanges, harm reduction, which are all really good, in my opinion. But the idea behind it is that, you know, heroin's bad, but we don't want people to get it um, illegally, so we'll give them a legal ma- method, but it's going to be inconvenient. It's not going to be glamorous. There's no advertising. It's nothing good. Um, It's very medical. Um, In Uruguay, the public was actually very against legalization. It was just the president who was a big reformer who kind of rammed it through, um, contrary to popular opinion, kind of the opposite of what's happening here in the U.S. Um, But they're doing it because they think marijuana is bad, but they want to reduce the harms. They're not doing it because they think marijuana is basically the same as alcohol and that people should be free to use it. It's kind of a different mentality they're coming at it from. And you're 100% right because actually to the contrary, I think in the marketplace, you know, much to my chagrin because I was born in Latin America, I was born in Paraguay, but I know in Uruguay, one of the, I think one of the joking, you know, one of the little anecdotes was that they, the reason why the government socialized pot was because the people were lamenting the, the shitty pot that was coming from Paraguay because it was like so such <laughs> low quality and it was like brickish and they call it like mm-hmm. Paraguay, you know, actually the way they call pot and down there in that part of the world, they actually call it porro, P-O-R-R-O, porro. And they suggest, it's funny the way that they really market is like, oh no, you know, we're tired of the, the Paraguayan shit weed, you know, and the government says, you know, you'll have three, but they'll, they'll be potent. And it's kind of funny that, you know, you have like, uh, certain governments engage in some form of regulatory capture in order to push out 
what was perceived to be like a very poor, uh, a very you know very poor marketplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it's it's fascinating. But ultimately, that goes into another subject, which is dear to our hearts, which is a criminal justice reform and the potential and the potential for uh, decriminalization of drugs. Do we feel that in our criminal justice system now that we tend to find punitive reasons to go after people with addiction? I mean, it goes without saying that, like in this country, especially, but around the world, I know that you know there has been interesting case studies. Portugal, in particular, where they decriminalized all drugs in order to really be more, you know, patient focused when it came to addictions rather than be carceral and punitive with people with potential addiction and or drug use. I think most people were concerned about the normalization of drug use, but I'd like to delve into your thought about the normalization of drug use, decriminalization of all drugs as a public health uh, necessity. And ultimately, uh, after that, you know, we can uh, call it call it a day and uh, figure out how best to move forward. But you know, I greatly appreciate you coming by. So, normalization of drugs, as well as uh, uh, decriminalization of drugs as a public health necessity. Your thoughts? Yeah, totally. Um, I'll hit normalization first, and then decriminalization afterwards. Um, and I guess I'll just lead by saying drug use is normal. Um, there's, there's never been a civilization, a society, a country in human history that has not used drugs in some way. Um, all of this drug policy conversation that we're having isn't about whether drugs are good or bad. It's kind of where the line is between an allowable and acceptable drug versus ones that are unacceptable. And Throughout history, particularly in the United States, that conversation hasn't been around, okay, which drugs are the most dangerous, which ones are the most addictive, which ones are the most linked to crime. Unfortunately, it's been mostly things like race uh, and culture, um, and then using these drugs kind of as proxies for those larger battles. Um, When we look back to when marijuana was prohibited, the reason wasn't because, oh, we just found out about marijuana um, and we did a bunch of studies of its effects and we think because of these certain metrics that it's too dangerous to be legal, let's ban it. Instead, it was, we don't want brown people in our societies, so we need to find a way to criminalize that uh, because of uh, you know the end of slavery and more attention being paid to racial issues. But you can criminalize behaviors and then only enforce those laws against brown people or other people you don't like. Um, So if you look back to the early opioid laws in California, that wasn't about opiates, that was about Chinese immigrants. If you look back to early marijuana prohibition, that wasn't about marijuana, that was about Mexican immigrants uh, and later black people. And so these laws were always supposedly in place uh, for everyone, but then they were only enforced against people that those in power uh, wanted to harm, basically, uh, and throw the book at. And so when you, when you look at mass incarceration, things like that, it's not that, oh, tons of people were using marijuana, uh, but we threw them all in jail and now there's too many people. It's, oh, you know, white people who are using marijuana or other drugs for a long period of time usually get off scot-free. Some of them get wrapped in the criminal justice system, but it's really targeted at people that don't look like them. Uh, and, and so as we've been moving towards this more 
you know, the, the social justice aspects uh, and fighting against racism uh, becoming a lot more mainstream, also kind of scientific thought and critical thinking becoming a lot more common. We're starting to look at drug policy in a way that, you know, maybe these drug these laws should be about the drugs themselves and which ones are more harmful rather than uh, just kind of fear mongering without any evidence. Um, and so when we look at it, marijuana is safer than alcohol. Um, when you look at it, MDMA and LSD and psilocybin, you know, those psychedelic drugs are in many ways actually a lot safer than alcohol too. Uh, and so we do need to take a more reasoned look at this and also be kind of introspective and in checking ourselves to make sure, okay, here's the policies we want to create, but let's make sure that they aren't having these disproportionate impacts that against people of color, against uh, other disadvantaged groups that they're basically originally designed to have these effects. So we need to make sure that we're not uh, continuing those just because it's, it's normal, because it's the status quo. We need to think critically about our own laws and make sure that we're updating them. Um, so that's kind of the normalization side of things. Um, one other point I did want to make too is just the, the line between drug use and drug abuse. Um, drug use is normal uh, and should be accepted. Uh, drug abuse, unfortunately, is also normal in the sense that it's common, um, but it, it should be something, you know, we're trying to help people, we're trying to fight against drug abuse um, and, and provide people the support that they need, but we need to make sure that we're actually drawing that line and that we're not just having that be colored by what drug they're using. In their class, they used to tell us that the definition of drug abuse is using any drug to the point that it interacts with your, that it interferes with your life or using any illegal drug. They literally said the definition of drug abuse is the same as the definition of using any illegal drug, which just doesn't make any sense. But as a middle schooler, you're like, all right, I'll write that down. Um, and so we do need to be more critical about that and make sure we're actually focusing on abuse. Um, then on the decriminalization side of things, I do think that decriminalization, just removing criminal penalties for drugs kind of flows naturally from that understanding of drugs that it is normal. It's something that a lot of people do. We need to make sure that people aren't abusing them. We need to help uh, them if they do have a problematic relationship with drugs, whether it's alcohol or anything else. Um, but we do need to also have the government policies, uh, you know, trying to protect the public as much as we can. So I think that decriminalization um, is the best way to do that. Um, if you look at it in the most minimalistic sort of way, just removing criminal penalties, but not actually legalizing, that's something that Portugal did all the way back in 2001. And they've had fantastic results uh, when it comes to things like spreading HIV through sharing needles, uh, when you look at addiction rates, or other actual metrics of abuse, those have all gone down. Um, and it's just because people are less afraid to reach out and get the support that they need in the same way that we currently you know, deal with alcoholism. Uh, we've decriminalized alcohol abuse uh, because we realized that, hey, alcoholics are probably helped a lot more uh, through things like AA or smart recovery or you know, therapy or other medical attention rather than you know, throwing them in prison and saying, don't do it again. Uh, we understand that that's crazy when we're talking about alcohol abuse or alcohol addiction. So why do we think that that would work for any other drug? Um, 
And so we do need to make sure that we're viewing all of our, our own policies in a way that, hey, if you replaced whatever drug we're talking about with alcohol, how would this sound? Um, and I think that that's a kind of important way to, to check yourself to make sure that we are being reasonable and not letting our, our policies and our debates get too overwhelmed by our own biases and other hangups about specific drugs. I'd like to thank, uh, I'd like to thank you, Sam Tracy, for uh, coming on the show and uh, uh, taking the time and the patience to go over all this with me. Is there anything you'd like to say, anything uh-huh. you'd like to plug before uh, we head on out from today's episode of the Guadcast? Yeah, I'd just like to say, I mean, first of all, thank you so much for having me on um, and bearing with me through the uh, connectivity issues. Um, It's been really enjoyable talking about this with you. And uh, for some plugs, I guess, if folks want to uh, reach out to me um, on Twitter, I'm just at Sam Tracy, S-A-M-T-R-A-C-Y. Follow me there. Feel free to message me. Uh, And the groups that I work with, Forefront is the marijuana uh, consulting firm that I work with. And I also work with the Portland Democrats here in Maine. Uh, and then finally, with Regulate Connecticut, which is the group trying to push through marijuana legalization in my home state of Connecticut. So if any of those sound interesting to you, or if you want to learn more, feel free to, uh, to reach out. This episode was recorded at Boston Free Radio at the Somerville Media Center at Union Square. If you'd like to hear the hip-hop music that we're playing on our program, tune in on Boston Free Radio, Saturdays from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. You can listen to the music live on Boston Free Radio. If you are unable to do so, don't fret. We have our Spotify playlist shown early on our Patreon. Patreon.com slash GS Hamlin for your Guaucast needs. Come on in and check out our Patreon.